With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last word on Spurs is sponsored proudly by The Athletic. The best coverage of Tottenham Hotspur beautifully written by a world-class team of writers, completely ad-free, no annoying pop-ups. Simply go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash last word to receive 50% off your yearly subscription. That works out to just £2.50 per month. The Athletic, the new home of football writing. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Last Word on Spurs. Before we get into it, we just want to say again a massive thank you to every single listener, contributor to the show, and thank you for downloading us every single week. Now, I'm sure you are aware by now, but just to emphasise, Last Word on Spurs do provide you with free shows a week. You have our regular show on a Sunday released for you guys at midnight. You have our patron show that normally tends to go out between Wednesday to Friday, where you can get extra content from the last word on Spurs. If you're interested in that content, you just simply need to go to www.patreon.com forward slash last word on Spurs. We've got some huge guests to come this season and we've had some wonderful content so far. We've had the likes of Tim Vickery on there. We've had Jack Pitt Brook on there. So you can catch more of our shows on there as well. And of course, we've got our Love Sports shows to come where this Thursday we'll be looking ahead to Watford back after the international break. But as we are in full flow of the international break, what we thought we would do is we would take an hour out to go and catch up with Martin Cloak from the Tottenham Hotspur Trust, who has currently got his own book out, 
Tottenham Hotspurs one step from glory as we know the wonderful run to that Champions League final and just relive some of the wonderful memories from that journey alongside myself and Jason McGovern. So I hope you enjoy this next hour in store and again thank you ever so much for your continued support. Co-author of the book One Step from Glory which is out right now. Martin Cloak joins us from the Tottenham Hotspur Trust. Martin, how are you? Thanks, lovely to be on the show. Pleased to have you here, Martin. I mean, this book, as we know, it is already out. We've got a competition that we're running later during the show in which you've got the opportunity to win yourselves a free copy of the book. So make sure you are avidly listening to this show for that question to come later on. Martin, firstly, I have to start and ask you, why the book? What was the reason behind it? Tell us. Uh, well, I wrote a book with a guy called Alex Finn, who uh, some of your listeners may know has written a number of books about both Spurs and Arsenal over the years. Uh, he's uh, a, a solid North Londoner who uh, comes from the generation that used to go and see Arsenal one week uh, and Spurs the next. And he also worked uh, with both clubs um, when he was uh, in the advertising business. He's actually the person who advised Spurs in the 80s when they, uh, they ran an advertising campaign to get people to come along to the, uh, to the ground. So um, I've known Alex for a few years. Uh, and as the this team came together, as Pochettino started to work his magic, we said there's a story to be told here. And uh, Alex wanted to do a book which was a tribute to his uncle, who was a guy called Ralph L. Finn, who uh, some listeners will know wrote a book called Spurs Supreme, which was about the double winning side. Um, and it was a kind of like a love letter to that team. Uh, it reported on every match during the season, uh, and it talked about the achievement that that team had made. So um, we talked for a while about writing a book about Spurs and about Pochettino and what he'd done. Uh, and with that run of the Champions League final last year, that kind of gave the story a bit of a spine, something to build it round. Uh, and we thought, let's try and do that. Let's use, let's use the match reports. Let's use the experience of going to the match. But let's try and tell the story of, of what's happened at Spurs over the past five years. And I think there's um, people will be aware there's been partly due to some hilarious uh, Pranksterism by our friends down the road's fans on Amazon, accused the book of being a celebration of failure. It's not just about the final, it's about a five year journey. And what we wanted to get across was this sense that over the last five years, since Pochettino's been in charge of the club, the club really has achieved more than in modern football it's supposed to. If you look at success over the past 10 or 15 years in, in top class football, you look at the amount of money spent on wages and the amount of money spent on transfer. Uh, and then you look at who the successful teams are, and the two things have gone together. And Spurs have broken the mould a little bit there. And I think that not just Spurs fans, but fans of other clubs uh, have had a bit of a sneaking in, the, in terms of fans of other clubs. They've had a bit of a sneaking respect because Spurs haven't just got where they've got by spending money. Uh, it's, it's almost like it used to be when I was a kid and I started watching football, and you like people because they coach teams. And it's the old phrase of, you know, Pochettino has achieved more than, uh, he's made the whole more than the sum of the parts as well. So that's really what we wanted to do. We wanted to put a, a book together which talked about um, the way Spurs play football and what the traditions of the club are, why Europe's important, um, how Pochettino has tapped into that and what he's achieved, and then try and you know, relive some of the, the memories of that run. And I think, again, in response to some of the, the you know, there's been some really weird um, twos and throws on social media as often is, and been disappointed that some Spurs fans have built, bought into that as well, that if... Somebody said to me, the only reason you should write a book is if you win something. Uh, and the, the whole point of sport is that you don't know who's going to win when you first go in there. And you can enjoy something. Would I enjoy it if Spurs won something, won a major trophy? Of course I would. That would be fantastic. Did I enjoy the journey last year? Did a lot of fans enjoy the journey last year? Yes, we did. Jace, what's your reaction out of interest to 
Martin's release of the book? Well, obviously, I, I think some people probably have, have made the old of judging a by its cover. And if, if you if you haven't read it, then then you, you really have no right to, to criticise the book. By all means, if you once you've read it and if you, you still want to make some some criticisms, then it comes, you know, there's obviously a lot more validity in there. You know, there's a hell of a lot more in the book than simply talking about the Champions League run. The greatest football books written in the last 20 or 30 years of the book were all played out by a guy called Pete Davis. And that's the story of England at Italia 90 World Cup. Uh, it's a fantastic inside view, but I remember rightly, England didn't win the World Cup that year. We went out in the semi-finals, didn't we? So, but a lot of people remember that run and they remember it very fondly. They also remember the run from, you know, just two summers ago to a World Cup semi-final even there. There is the thing, I, I shouldn't think anyone was sitting on their sofa when Lucas Moura scored his goal in Ajax, thinking, well, I'm not going to celebrate that goal yet because if we lose to Liverpool, that goal means nothing. You know, if, if that's how you do watch football and you, and you can't get caught up in the emotions at the time, it's a, it's a pretty sad state of affair, not the support for you in the first place. Funny, I think it's quite ironic that I think a lot of the people that have criticised that aspect of the book are also the people that say, you know, the game's all about money now. Uh, and, you know, that it, it's true. Football's turned into a big business and the, the clubs at the top uh, want to, you know, make sure that, you know, they if they can't guarantee winning, they want to guarantee almost winning. So, you know, if they had their way, there wouldn't be relegation. There'd be a permanent European Super League and all the rest of it. Uh, and, you know, the, that, that element of surprise and doubt will go out of it as well. And so you can't criticise that and then and then not not enjoy what you're seeing in front of you. And we had some fantastic entertainment. And as you say, Jace, that, you know, if you... Nobody who was in the stadium or watching on the TV who was a Spurs fan who saw that comeback in the second half in Amsterdam would have been thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll wait and see if I'm going to jump around until I actually win the trophy or not. It was a fantastic moment. It's a moment that none of us are ever going to forget. And we had quite a few of those in that run. Do you think, Martin, in a way, that Champions League run, it's been somewhat forgotten by some supporters because of the nature of our start to this campaign? Let's not forget ourselves. We're talking merely four or five months ago that we were on that wonderful journey. I think there's an element of that, but you could look at it the other way and say the Champions League run masks the fact that actually in the second half of last season, we weren't that great, especially away from home. Uh, and, you know, I've loved this team probably more than I've loved any other team since the early 80s team, uh, which is the team that I grew up watching. But uh, the, the quality of the football and the experience wasn't as good in a lot of the, the Premier League games last year as well. So but I think that I think the manager's got a lot of credit in the bank. I think the players... You know, still, despite the doubts that there are in some quarters, got credit in the bank because people remember um, what's been achieved over the past five years. And I think people do, you know, they want to see more from, from the club, but they do they do recognise, I think, most fans, what's been achieved. The book opens with a, with a chapter titled The Spurs Way. And we, we often see the phrase, the game is about glory on the holdings at Tottenham. But of course, The Spurs Way, it is a little bit more than just the game is about glory. It is, and we wanted to, when we, we started talking about the book, me and Alex kind of spent quite a long time how we'd address this, because a lot of people think it's a bit of an affectation. You know, Spurs fans like to think that they're really stylish, but, you know, what is all this stuff about the Spurs way? And from within our own support base, people say, well, you know, there's too much emphasis on, on glory and style. We need to get a bit hard-headed. We need to win. But one of the points that we make in the opening chapter is that that great phrase by the, by the legend Danny Blanchflower is, is usually misinterpreted in, in our opinion that he said the game is about glory it's about winning things in style and he, he put winning and doing it in style on on the same level 
Uh, and he's, his, his view is that one without the other is, is worthless. Now, again, that's not a view that everybody agrees with, but it's not the common interpretation that's there. I think that, that playing football in style is important to Spurs fans, and I think it's important to the personality of the club. And, you know, there's no science behind this at all, um, but I, I happen to think that when a club taps into its traditions and it, it recognises what its personality is, it does better. And the example that I used recently is, is Mourinho in charge at, at Manchester United. And I know things aren't going well for them again this season, but I think that they lost their way a bit. That, you know, people always associated Manchester United with attacking adventure anti football. Uh, and I think that part of the problem they had when Mourinho was there is that he didn't buy into that. And I think, you know, the crowd gets their energy off. Uh, I've seen the club play the sort of football that they think that their club should be associated with. So I think, you know, it's very unscientific, but I think that stuff is important. And do, do you think as the years go on, that more and more fans who remember that, that, that Bill Nicholson era and going back even beyond that, the Arthur O era, do you, do you, you feel like the, the message of that era is, gets sadly lost each year? And as the, the younger, more generational fan comes in, it's, it's more important to them that they can have some banter on Twitter than, than respecting the traditions of the club. I think there's a bit of that. I mean, I'm always loath to play the sort of the, the old geezer who's having a go at a young lot because I remember when I was young, it used to really wind me up as well. Um, uh, and, and, you know, people always blame social media, but it's, it's the way people use it. I think that I think that what Twitter does especially is that it gives you the opportunity to, to say something in, in the moment instantly uh, you're not if you're standing or sitting opposite somebody that you're having a conversation with you have to observe a few basics as well uh, I think that it takes the kind of human filter off and I think people just do as you say they go for that instant response and maybe if they think one of the things about writing the book is that you go back over it and you look at what you've written down and you say now you know is that am I making myself as clear as I should be do I really agree with that is that going to stand up to an argument as well whereas with Twitter it's you know and I've had these arguments with people you know, one day that they've been really banging me over the head for something, and the next day they go, oh, actually, well, I didn't really mean that. You know, what I meant was this. And it's all, it, it's it's it, it's kind of transitory in a way. So, you know, you do wonder what would have happened, you know, to, to Bill Nicholson when we were on a little bit, bad, bit of a bad run uh, when he was rebuilding teams after the double team, whether, whether he would have lasted the amount of time that he did. So, but I think I think it's too easy to blame it on the, the young people and on, on social media. Uh, I think a lot of things have changed. And of course, you know, people pay a lot more money to go and see football clubs now. And unfortunately, I don't particularly like it. But it's a fact of life that people say, well, I've paid this amount of money. Therefore, I'm entitled to something. You know, one of the things that winds me up is when people say I should get a refund uh, because we're the team are rubbish. And it's like, well, when the team are brilliant, you don't offer to pay extra, do you? And actually, you pay for a ticket to see your team play football. And actually, I'd, if I knew my team was going to win, it takes the fun out of it, you know. It's another great Danny Blanchflower quote when he was commentating in the States and they said to as a, as a as a pundit, they said to him, who do you think is going to win today? He said, I don't know, that's why they're playing the match. But that's that's where we go, that's the fun, isn't it? One, one person highlighted is a person that I feel gets completely overlooked by so many in our history is, is Arthur Rowe because so much of the club's historic ses, his success is, is put down to Bill Nick and the... But it's a famous push-and-run style that came from Arthur Rowe. It's, it's Arthur Rowe that brought Bill Nicholson Tottenham. It's Arthur Rowe that won us back-to-back championships in the, the second division as it was then and then straight into the first division winning it. And, and it's a fantastic chapter, that book, that highlights the background to the real club that we are. I think it's unfortunate that he does live in the shadow of, of Bill Nicholson and rightly Bill's considered our, our greatest manager, the most successful we ever had. And, you know, we, we made history under, under Bill Nicholson. But without Arthur Rowe, 
there wouldn't have been a Bill Nicholson. Bill Nicholson uh, was a member of Arthur. He was a player in Arthur Rowe's team, and Arthur brought that that uh, that style of playing football, the passing style, um, uh, in, into the English game. And at, at the time, if you go back through the story, it was, it was in the 1930s, really, uh, under you know people like Peter McWilliam, uh, who was one of the older Spurs managers. We're going back into the 20s and 30s now. That. That the, I think there's always been a bit of suspicious suspicion of the club because they're supposed to be a little bit fancy Dan. But all of those people wanted the team to play football in a way that wasn't associated with the English game. The English game was about getting some big forwards up front, sticking the ball in the box. And if you need to charge the keeper into the net as well, you do that. But it was about brawn and it was about strength and it was about you know athleticism. And players passing the ball and running with the ball and going round people was seen as a little bit suspect. You know, it's kind of slightly cheating and ungentlemanly is not what we really do over here uh, and you know Arthur picked up on that and uh, he was he was asked at one stage to go and coach the Hungarian national side uh, and of course they um, he was over there just before the war came back when the war broke out uh, after the war the Hungarians came over and humiliated England at Wembley and it was a wake-up call for English football that they thought that you know we've just got to turn up we invented the game uh, and that we can beat anybody uh, and there was this different style of football that was being played and Arthur's mantra was about making the ball do the work. It was about interchangeability of position. And if you go back through your history, people that were, were, were associated with um, with Arthur Rowe, there's a guy called Vic Buckingham, who was a Spurs player and coach. He went over to a club in Amsterdam called Ajax, discovered a lad called Johan Cruyff, um, developed a style of football, which eventually became the total football of the Dutch sides in the, in the 1970s. So there's all these connections that, that went on there. And Bill Nicholson basically took Arthur Rose pushing run style, which we'd won the club's first um, championship with in 1951. Uh, and we did that in spectacular style, won the second division championship, won the first division championship immediately the next season, destroyed Newcastle in a famous game at, uh, at White Hart Lane, put seven goals past them. And they were the big English team at the side. Uh, and people hadn't seen anything like that before. And what Bill Nicholson did was that he moved that on a bit and he made it quicker and slicker. And he had some fantastic players on his side. But you talk to people, uh, you know, I see um, uh, John White's son regularly at games now, uh, Rob. Um, and he, he'll always say that his family always talks about Arthur Rowe uh, and about the influence that Arthur Rowe had on the club as well. So, um, you know, he's, he's a, he remains a bit of an unrecognised figure in the club's history. But I think more people are hearing about him now. And again, we wanted to do a little bit, which which gave him credit for his role. I thought it was all down to Pep. I well, never realised it was going on 60 years ago. <laughs> there's, 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 a, there's a line that goes back because because Pep was at Barcelona, of course, wasn't he? And who went to Barcelona is Johan Cruyff. And a lot of the stuff that the Barcelona Academy has done in the past 20 or 30 years is based on on that idea of, of interchangeability of position, you know, of challenging the traditional formations as well. So, you know, there's a line that goes back through there. These people were some of the the most progressive thinkers in football. following chapter, of course, is, is titled The Glory, Glory Nights, which again takes us through through plenty of highs and, and a few lows. European nights are so revered and why they're so important to us. And they are the nights that so many of us will be discussing in 20 years' time. And they, they do fantastic memories. Yeah, there, there is some magic. I mean, it's, it's Bill Nicholson's quote, wasn't he? He said, this club is nothing without Europe. And he recognised that we needed not only to, to dominate in you know the domestic arena, but go and take on the best uh, that mainland Europe had to offer. But I think there have been so many fantastic nights, um, uh, uh, you know, the old White Hart Lane over the years. I mean, the first the first run uh, that we had in Europe after we won the double in, in 61, uh, we went into the, the European Cup in 62 and we had that 
tremendous run. You know, the opening game against uh, against Gornik, uh, the, the, the Polish side, uh, when the people still talk about the noise that was in the stadium that night as well. And that's where the um, the, the, the uh, glory, glory, hallelujah comes from, because we've been a little bit physical in the first leg. And the Polish press has said, this Spurs team are no angels. And a group of three Spurs fans took exception to that, dressed up as angels and walked around the edge of the pitch with these kind of banners saying, celebrate them for their glories. It's a bit of humour. Actually got in trouble a few years later with the local vicar because he said that they were taking the Lord's name in vain. So there's always somebody getting offended somewhere along the line, it seems. That's where those those nights came from. We had a fantastic run. Unluckily, went out to Benfica in the semi-final. And, and again, the game against Benfica is still talked about as one of the great games that was played. And over the years, it's been that combination of, you know, the all-white strip, the floodlights, um, some fantastic games. The game when when Hoddle, you know, put Cruyff in his place, when Cruyff was towards the end of his career. Cruyff came along when he was playing for Feyenoord and said, who's this lad that they're talking about? You know, I'm going to put him back in his place. And Hoddle had a fantastic game. There's been loads of games like that. And, of course, I was talking to somebody this afternoon and... Uh, one of the things that people often forget, because it's how football has changed, is that Spurs fans are lucky in that we've seen uh, our team win a European trophy at our home ground twice. Now, that can't happen anymore because they don't play finals at, at the venues of the clubs. It's always at a neutral venue. But, of course, we've, we've, we've benefited from that twice. First British team to win a European trophy. Uh, the first British team to win two different European trophies. So it, there's a fantastic history there. And I think it started to, you know, that, that first game against Manchester City, which I know we'll talk about uh, later, but you know, the, the new stadium had finally opened. And the atmosphere in there, I think a lot of us have thought, is it ever really going to be the same as it was at the old ground? And it was a fantastic atmosphere that night. And we're already starting to build uh, a new bit of history. Part of the, the fact that they were so special, particularly the ones in the past, is because, you know, television didn't show you games from La Liga and, and the Bundesliga and Serie A, did it? And so these... These clubs that we were playing, you know, AC Milan's and Bayern Munich's and Barcelona's, they were just these fantastic names with with fantastic players that we, we really only got a chance to see some of those players at World Cups and things like that. I think that's the point. I mean, I don't joke, but it's, it's kind of true to a certain extent that I, I became better at geography when I was a school kid because I used to look up, you know, it's like where, where UT Arad, I think we played in the early 70s. It's like, where's that? You know, there's a, where's Romania? And he'd look, and I'd kind of learnt where things were because that's who Spurs were playing. So too much of my life revolved around around the club, really. But it, it, it was a bit exotic. And I think, you know, one of the things we did in the book was that we used newspaper reports. And I said that I, I was lucky enough to work with, with Adam Powley and Doug Cheeseman a few years ago on the, the club's official history of European nights. And we wanted to use newspaper reports um, because they're contemporaneous. They gave you a sense of being there. But it's interesting how, you know, it's exactly what you say, that back in the day, and I can remember, you know, my family used to read the Daily Mirror. It used to be Ken Jones and Frank McGee, the voice of sport. You uh, used to report on those matches. And I might have listened to it on the radio, Sport on 2 on Radio 2. But I hadn't seen the game. So they were painting pictures with words in these reports. And, of course, now, if you're a newspaper reporter, then everybody that your your audience has seen the game, pretty much. So, but, you know, one of the, 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 the arts is, is still there is that, you know, you look at the way they write those reports, you have to get your first draft ready um, by half time. So you've got a game like uh, like the game against Ajax. And so, you, you know, your draft is there, you know, Pochettino's got it wrong, set the team up wrong, you know, Spurs were edged out. And then, of course, during the second half, you're just ripping that up completely, struggling to hit your deadline. And the fact that they do that, I think it's, it's still, it's a remarkable demonstration of a, of a, 
of a match report skill, and we want to celebrate that a little bit in the book by including those match reports as well. Pochettino is then covered in the next chapter, his magic you know. The philosophies, the beliefs he has, and an overall view of the job he has done throughout his years at Spurs, up to that sad conclusion to the night in Madrid, what do you take away from that Champions League run and just the work that had gone into that journey from Maurizio and his overall job up to that point for you? An idea for the book came from is that, you know, what, what has Pochettino done to, to restore people's faith in the team? And I think it's a journey that started with, with Martin Yole, who I've still got a lot of affection for as a manager. I think he started making us love our team again after a few years when it had been a bit of a chore, if we're going to be honest, just turning up. Uh, and watching him, and you'll always support your club, but it, it wasn't a huge amount of fun. Um, but Pochettino pretty quickly got us playing decent football, looking sharp, and it was a kind of a, it was an updated, it was a very modern version of, of, of football, and very kind of in tune with with the latest thinking. But it's something that tapped into the traditions uh, of, of Spurs, the things that we were talking about a few minutes ago. And I think that's what's fascinating about Pochettino that he's not been kind of you know, sentimental about the past. He's recognised it, but he said, you know, I know what this club's about and what it represents and what the supporters like to see, what the, what the soul or personality of Tunnel Hotspur is as well. Uh, and I will bear that in mind, but I'm going to build my own version of that. And I think, it, you know, the club is very much, uh, the team certainly is a team very much in his own image at the moment. Uh, he's stamped his own philosophy on there and he's undoubtedly the boss. Um, but it, it, it does link in with, with, sort of you know the football that we like to see so uh, and I think again the fact that he's done that without just using the checkbook is something that people have um, have really respected and Spurs teams have always been a combination of big buys and, and and homegrown you know special players Martin you then take us through the Champions League journey itself and without talking about the games for a moment just how many memories and friendships along with the enjoyment is made on a European away day trip for you? It's one of my favourite things. And I mean, I'm lucky enough that, that I'm able to go uh, and, uh, you know, I can, you know, get just about enough leave squeezed out and it certainly hits you in, in the credit card. But I mean, we, I, I first started going, I think in the, in the early nineties, my first European away game was when we played in Vienna against Sparkas Stocker out. Um, uh, Cause I think the game had been moved because of the Balkans war or something. And, and I, I, I love it because it's uh, it is a different experience. You do get to meet some fantastic people. There's a lot of familiar faces um, that you know you, you get to know over the years. A lot of the same people are still going, but met loads of new people as well. Some of my best friends and had some fantastic times. And we wanted to try uh, and get a flavour of what it means to the fans. It's not just about the football. It is about the trip. It's about you know being with people you know, but kicking back a little bit with your mates. But we also wanted to get the other side of the supporter experience in as well. Um, without making the book too kind of big people political. But I think as any English football fan knows that's followed their team abroad in Europe, the, the image that's portrayed, the glitz, particularly the Champions League, is not necessarily what you see. And we try and talk a little bit about that, that, you know, the appalling treatment that the fans get, terrible facilities, the bad views. Uh, and I mean, on this run especially, you know, we had one of the worst experiences, which was at the Barcelona game. And you think, you know, everybody, Barcelona's on the football bucket list, isn't it? Everybody wants to go there. Uh, it would take a lot for me to go back to that stadium. The facilities are terrible. The view's terrible. Uh, and Spurs fans were physically attacked by Barcelona stewards outside the ground and inside the ground as well. Uh, and there wasn't, you know, I've seen Spurs fans misbehaving, you know, back in the day. I'm not naive. I know what goes on. But there was no no reason, no provocation for this at all this time. It was just out of control stewarding. It's happened too many times before in Spain and in Italy as well. And there's a real issue with that. 
So we wanted to try without making it too much about supporter experience and talking about some of those, if you like, political issues. We wanted to put in, you know, the fun and, and, and what it means to people, but also what fans have to go through. And I think personally, you know, that was important to me to, to, to put that in the book and make it part of the, the main fabric of the story so that people started asking questions about that. Uh, I think things have got to change in the treatment of, uh, of English football fans abroad. When we look back at each of the games on that run, you and Alex take a, a real look and, and set the scene that, that's building up. It's not just this is match day one, Spurs are playing Inter. It, it tells you what's going on before that game, the, the type of form that we're in, the, the, the comments of Pochettino when he's describing, you know, talking about cows in the build up to that one with, with players being left out. And it's, it's, it's not just the, the actual fixture, but then, as you say, you then get the, the fantastic report from the, the journalist, which perhaps puts a little bit more balance on it than the, the traditional Tottenham, you know, biased viewpoint. Yeah, I think, I think that's why we wanted to do it. It's a combination of reasons. I mean, I've talked about wanting to, you know, about saying too pretentious, celebrate the art of the match reporter, but we wanted to put each game in its context. So as you say, they were quite a good way because the lead-ins and the, some of the kind of the post-game analysis, because the reporters don't just write about the game that everybody's seen. You've got a sense of what was going on at the time. You know what was the the atmosphere like? What was the the form like on the way to the game? You know what what were we what was going to come up next? What were the challenges that the club's been facing? What have Pochettino been saying in these press conferences? And it gives good copy to the journalists as well. Sometimes I wish he'd be a bit duller, um, but you know the journalist in me says that he's, he's fantastic at doing that as well. But we also wanted to, you know, not just uh, leave ourselves open to the accusation that it was two people who are obviously fans of the club. Um, that were that were just saying that how good the run was. Is that well? It's not just us that think that this has been quite remarkable. It's these other fairly seasoned, unbiased observers of the game who were saying actually there's something special going on here as well. So we wanted to give you know to bring some other voices in it to give it a bit of balance as well as a bit of context if you like. Martin, match day two, and we finally got to witness the game's other superstar, Lionel Messi. We had to watch a real masterclass, unfortunately, that evening. Is he the best player you have witnessed against us? And how tough was it watching him playing with us for most of that evening? Uh, it, it was. It, it's odd because I never quite appreciate If I'm watching my team, I don't watch the game in the same way as I watch anything else. So I think if I'd have been a neutral watching that, I would have appreciated even more how brilliant he was. And I think maybe the measure of how good he was is that uh, you know, I'm not completely one-eyed, but it's always difficult to see somebody taking your own side apart. Uh, and you had to recognise that, you know, the guy was a fantastic player. I mean, I've loved watching him over the last few years anyway. It was fantastic seeing him. And of course, that was the night that was supposed to be, uh, you know, the first Champions League game at New Stadium as well, wasn't it? So, you know, we're at Wembley. Uh, we, 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 got completely, we got completely blown off the pitch that night. And I mean, Messi was fantastic. Uh, it was a privilege to be there. Um, so there's me with my small club mentality again because I'm not supposed to celebrate anything apart from winning or you know other players being being good against us. But if you're a football fan, you have to recognise that was good. But in a way, I kind of I wouldn't mind sitting down and painful as it would be watching the game again because I kind of at the time you, you don't appreciate it in the same way uh, if if you're watching your own team if you're being a supporter. I don't think you watch the game in the same way. So it was a really strange night, but you know it. I'm going to remember that for a long time. He was fantastic. It feels a lot easier being torn apart by Messi than it does by Serge for sure, mate. Well, exactly, yeah. Flipping heck, yeah. Or the, the fellow at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> 
PSV was was next up, an away night, and that was a tough night and a result to take. And it was in the middle of a period when we were playing really poorly as a side. It was that typical chaotic Tottenham night with a disastrous Toby giveaway for a goal and an Ericsson giveaway that led to Hugo's red card, late equaliser. And, and that night, it looked almost certain that probably elimination would follow. Did you really have the belief then that we'd still actually get out of the group? Oh, not at all. I mean, we'd had that the uh, you know the, the problem in the uh, in the first game, hadn't we, against uh, against Inter when we'd uh, looked to be going well and we conceded late on, and we'd lost that, and we just thought. I think that was the first time a few of us started saying things had changed a little bit, you know, because we'd had those you know two seasons certainly when you know we looked like we were sweeping them before us, and um, you know we thought something's going to come out of this, and we I think the doubt started creeping in uh, after after that result, and it was it was a you know. It was a bit of a crazy night, and I think the you know the, the general sort of fatigue with not moving into the new stadium was starting to set in at that stage as well. So it wasn't the best of nights, and I mean we certainly didn't didn't think that, uh, that we'd get to the final. We were starting to think you know we're not going to get out of the group here. Martin, then came the drama of the two late Wembley winners to keep our hopes alive of going through to that last sixteen. But going to Barcelona for you was it more in hope? rather than expectation. And how was the emotion at that moment of Lucas Moura scoring and the result filtering through from Milan? I think we went we went in hope. Uh, Barcelona have, have just been so dominant. I mean, they were they, the feeling was that maybe they'd peaked a little bit, but we just thought the way that we've been playing and we've got to go out there, we've made this really hard for ourselves. When the draw first came out, we thought, well, you know, at least Barca is the last game. Hopefully it's a dead rubber. We both qualified and you know, everything will be fine. We can go over and enjoy the trip. Um, so... I never entirely write us off, and it's not, you know, just I would say that, wouldn't I? That I used to, at the start of the season, my mates used to take the mick out of me because I'd say, you know, well, I think we could probably win the league this year. But I said that, you know, if we, if I didn't really think we could compete, then then why would I bother? It certainly didn't start off that well. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the experience around getting into the game and being in there uh, was, was pretty bloody awful, if I'm going to be honest about it. Um, and so, you know, the... You know the goal at the end, and the, uh, the, the you know hearing that we'd gone through. I mean, it was just uh, it was just insane, really. And uh, I don't think any of us could believe it. But I think that you know a little. I think at that stage, after all the doubts that had been in there, we were then started thinking, well, actually, maybe this thing about Tottenham being a little bit of a soft touch, and you know they always kind of fall short. Maybe maybe we've got some luck with us, but maybe we've actually got a bit of a in a harder centre, and we're going to do something here. So um, you know, it, it was it was an extraordinary night, and. It was a pity that it was spoilt by what went on around the stewarding of that and you know the fact that the whole back meant that a lot of people couldn't get back into to Barcelona because they deliberately held us back until the Metro had finished. So there was, there was a real night of contrasting emotions, I think, that was. We're going to go for a very short break and when we return, we're going to continue looking back on Tottenham Hotspur's Champions League journey from last season. But taking you into the break, we've got Anna from Spurs XY who is talking you through the ladies' result today. And it's worth noting that whilst the football may have stopped for the men and the youth, the women keep on going. And we're going to be back after this very short break. Last Word on Spurs is sponsored proudly by The Athletic, the best coverage of Tottenham Hotspur, beautifully written by a world-class team of writers, completely ad-free, no annoying pop-ups. Simply go to theathletic.co.uk. 
www.lastwordpodcast.co.uk forward slash last word to receive 50% off your yearly subscription. That works out to just £2.50 per month. The Athletic, the new home of football writing. Hello everyone, I'm Anna from Spurs XY and welcome back to the Spurs Women segment here on The Last Word on Spurs. That's right, Tottenham Hotspur women were back in action today in the WSL at the Hive and they played against Manchester United women. Manchester United being a very, very new club, they were only founded, created, established, whatever you want to call it, last season. Uh, they immediately went into the championship, so they were with us as well last season, so we played against them. And they won it, so they got promoted, obviously being champions, into the Barclays WSL. So they are a worthy opponent, they're rather strong. I anticipated today being quite hard, um, but I also expected us to do better than we did last season. Last season's game didn't go so well, um, they were much stronger then. And although we lost 3-0 today, which, bear with me, it sounds bad, but it really does not reflect the game. Don't get me wrong, I feel like they did deserve to win. They were better, they were sharper, they were quicker to the ball, they their passing was a lot better. Um, their number 11 was outstanding today. She was she she really stood out for me. Um, so that being said, you know, while they deserve the three points, I think a more fair reflection of the game would have been 2-1. And to be honest, whoever I talked to before the game, I mean, I predicted 2-1 in my vlog for us. Um, I was obviously being fairly optimistic. I would have taken a, a score draw or, you know, um, I wouldn't have taken, a, I mean, I don't want a loss, but I would have felt that, uh, a loss where there's only one goal in it would have been a lot fairer considering the two teams and anyone I spoke to they all said the same that there was only going to be one goal in it and it's really sad that in a way it will go down as a 3-0 because I don't think they deserved the 3-0 because they weren't that much better and we didn't deserve to not score because we weren't that bad um, so let's get into it it was a fairly strong team Ash Neville finally started today after she didn't start the uh, last game so I was very excited about that and uh, Megan Wynn finally got her pro debut she was on the bench and I actually tweeted out saying like I hope she can come on for a couple minutes because she's been out and about and I don't know why she's not played so yeah was very happy about that um, but overall yeah I think it was a strong team like I really I thought the lineup was good um, obviously a massive bummer for us is that Gemma Davison is injured and she's been crucial to us so um, it really that actually showed today that our midfield was just not at it we did not win the midfield battles unfortunately Chloe Peplow wasn't really on her game sadly um, however before I actually get into the game I was just remembered speaking of all the players and, and the managers so Karen and Juan actually won the manager the September manager of the month award or whatever however that's called anyway they won the award uh, which is amazing so I'm very very proud of them obviously our first ever season and the first month in the Barclays WSL and they won the award which is great and to add to that the players the fans player of the month award is now out I don't know how long you can vote for so if you still have a chance to just check on Twitter and everything we've been retweeting it so you can definitely find a link for it the PFA fans award for the players uh, Rachel Furness is nominated and she was amazing for us she obviously got the, the winning goal against Liverpool and she um, had a loads of shots and sit like she just did very well in September so I'm very glad that we've got a player in there. So please go and vote if you have a chance to by the time you listen to this. It's still, I think the voting should still be open. I believe it closes on Monday or something like that. But um, but yeah, please go and check it out. So that's put that aside. And yeah, the game was good. So we had plenty of great players on the pitch. I just obviously the, the Gemma Davison part was missing out. And, uh, and yes, but... 
United started really strong. Um, the first couple of minutes we were good, but then United were really strong and we just looked a bit slow. We didn't put enough pressure on them. We didn't close them down enough. We did not win the midfield balls. We did not get to the 50-50s. And unfortunately, then they scored. So it was just, it was a little bit of an uphill battle from there. But um, but we grew into it. The end of the second, the first half was really good, which gave me hope for the second half, the beginning of it. Um, and, you know, as I said, we grew into it a lot more. And even at 1-0, I thought it could be anyone's game. There's no reason why we can go and score and uh, and get back into this game. Unfortunately, though, in the second half, uh, a bit of a defensive error from Ash Neville, which is unusual, but uh, she's already had, she's she's got an own goal while she was trying to defend and it just went to the back of the net. Um, it happens sometimes. I feel like she could have left it for um, for Becky Spencer because I think that the, the player behind her wasn't that close, but hey, in the end of the day, it happened. The sad thing was that it just happened earlier on in the second half, so it meant that the momentum we took from the break or before the break just didn't carry on. Um, even at 2-0, I think it was good. We had chances and um, I feel like we could have got to 2-1 and I, I wouldn't, like obviously I'm not happy with the loss, but I would have been uh, a lot more pleased getting a consolation goal. But unfortunately, obviously, when you, you open up to try and um, score a goal, then you can concede, as we obviously saw with the men against Bayern. But uh, thankfully, I think the women just overall still played well. Like there's a lot to learn from it and um, when United are stronger side and you know it's just like against Chelsea but uh, you can learn from these kind of defeats and I feel like there are a lot of positives to take away from this because we uh, you know we didn't just crumble we didn't give up we still were fighting and we brought on some players who still looked really sharp and you know we still created chances right till the very end which um, in the end of the day that's what I can hope for even if you're losing just don't give up hope and just keep going for it but there's still lots to learn from and improve on um, obviously the team still needs to start to play together a lot more but I was overall happy, like, you know, as I said, losses are never good, but it's a lot more positive when you can see, you know, what you can, how you can improve from it, how you can move on from it. And obviously Juan and Karen will be able to uh, train the girls and, and get a lot better together. I, I feel like there's a lot of hope in there, um, as opposed to the men where, you know, our losses just seem like no one wants to play, where this is the total opposite here, it's just a bad result, but the performance will be there and it will just get better, like, it's clearly just going to get better and better, and and the more important thing is that we are winning the, the Liverpool games and the, and the West Ham games, who are more of our opponents, and unfortunately, the Manchester United are just a bit that much stronger, so... Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it for this one. Um, unfortunately, obviously, they didn't go our way. But as I said, um, it was still a good game. We've got a couple of away games coming up. Uh, I think, I believe our next home game is actually going to be the North London Derby at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So well excited about that. There's still no ticket information about that, but that's November 17th. So it's still a month away. And uh, I am already really, really, really looking forward to it. So if you've got a chance to, then if there's any game you could go to, you just, you have to come to that one. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling on now. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. And come on, you Spurs women. Get the brands you love at littlewoods.com. Whether you use it for studying or streaming, find the Asus Chromebook 11.6-inch in grey for just $199.99. All with inclusive delivery and free returns. Hurry, offer ends 25th of October. Own it. Shop now at littlewoods.com. Hello, welcome back to the last word on Spurs. Martin, qualification gained. What was your realistic thoughts and how far we'd go once we'd been drawn with Dortmund? I mean, the Dortmund games were, were impressive, weren't they? Uh, and we, we, we've got a little bit of a recent history against them now. But and I mean, Dortmund now, or Dortmund last season, weren't the side that they had been a few years before. I think we got a lot of confidence back out of that. And I said last season was a little bit 
a little bit iffy in the in the Premier League and certainly the away form. But um, both of those legs were, you know, real confidence boosters, I think. And we thought, you know, we're, we're coming right at the right time. And I think, funny enough, what everybody said was that we'll be all right as long as we don't get City. <laughs> I was going to say, it was, it was around that Dortmund time, of course, that the league form suffered and we we suffered the, the defeats at Burnley and Chelsea and a, a draw with Woolwich and then another defeat at Southampton. And we, we suddenly realised that the title hopes are gone and it, it only leaves us a Champions League. And, and you're right, then, then it wasn't helped when we got that draw against City and most people thought, oh no, that was the worst possible draw, wasn't it? It did seem to me, but I, I couldn't, you know, I remember football fans are funny, aren't they? The arguments at the time where people were really starting to say, well, should we just kind of like bin off the, the, the Premier League and concentrate on the on the, the Champions League? But, you know, I don't think you really get a choice and, you know, doing well in the game means that you do well in the next game a lot of the time. But um, yeah, the, the, I think the City draw, I think most of us thought, you know, that that's probably it. Because, again, you know, they've got the, you know, they've got the resources that no other club's got. You know, they've got some fantastic players. They were playing great football and we thought, you know, we're going to do well to, to get anything out of this. So uh, the, the mood wasn't great, but, uh, you know, it's Spurs playing. It's Spurs playing in a European tie, uh, even though it's in the same country. And uh, we, we all, we're all going to be there and, uh, you know, sort of for the home and, and away legs. Martin, that City game was, of course, the first European night in the new stadium. And we really did put on an intelligent display, keeping a clean sheet, reducing them to really just that Aguero penalty as a chance and capped off with a brilliant goal from Hummin Son. The ultimate professional European home leg performance. Is that how you saw it as well in your eyes? I think that was one of my favourite nights in a long time. And I think, again, that... You know, even the most ardent supporter of the new stadium project must have thought at some stage, is this really going to work? Is it ever going to be the same uh, as, as 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 our, our you know, beloved old ground? And it wasn't the same. Um, it was very, very different. But the atmosphere in the bars beforehand, the atmosphere in the stadium that night was was absolutely fantastic. That TIFO in the South Stand, I think, is, is every Spurs fan's kind of wallpaper now on there on their desktop and on their phones and all the rest of it as well. It, it was just fantastic. And it showed that, you know, if the crowd are up for it, if the occasion's there, uh, you know, any stadium can bounce. And that stadium certainly can. It, it was astonishing. You know, I think I, I said um, uh, I said earlier, I did I did an interview earlier on with, with BBC London and mentioned the same thing. So people have heard the same story twice. I apologise. But we did the, uh, the stadium tour just before the start of the season. And the, the, the guide that took us round, they've already started weaving that game into the into the folklore of the club, if you like. And he said, that's, he says, that's the, the 17,000 seat at South Stand, which is one of the largest single tier stands in Europe. And that the, uh, the, the Champions League game against Manchester City, uh, City were wrongly awarded a penalty, of course. And Aguero was so intimidated by the atmosphere coming out of that stand that he missed it. And so that stand saved us a goal. Uh, and so we started building our own history again there. And I think that's great. But that was, it was a fantastic occasion. And you're right, Rick, that the performance was the sort of performance that we wondered whether Spurs could put in. Because we know that Spurs go out, attack, get some goals, keep on top, they can win. What about if you have to play that kind of classic European, keep it tight and try and snatch something? Um, and we did do that against a very, very good side. And what, what a goal that was from Sonny. What a goal. And, you know, just... I think, you know, if he never does anything else for the club, people will love him just for that. But the guy has been so good for us in the time he's been here. So it was fantastic that he got that goal. And whilst many will have Ajax as their, their favourite memory of that run, 
City away, personally, for me, is because it's a game that went in so many different directions. We go up there full of hope. We go a goal down inside two minutes with the, with the first leg lead wiped out. Then we actually go 3-1 up on aggregate. The, the game completely swings again. Lorente puts one in off his thigh. And then, of course, right at the end, when, when so many people say the problem with VAR is it kills the emotion, they forget that, that for, for some people in the crowd that you get from that, it's just such a high. It was an astonishing night. I mean, I don't think I can remember a game where I've kind of veered between like you know, total despair and, and absolute ecstasy and then back again and back again and back again. Uh, it was it was just astonishing. I mean, you know, the opening half an hour of that game was, was just more drama than, than a lot of teams get in a whole season, really, wasn't it, as well? Um, I, I don't particularly like that stadium. I don't particularly like the atmosphere out there, I must say, but it was it was really crackling that night. Uh, just total madness on the pitch, really. Um, fantastic football to watch, if not, you know, for the, the kind of the, the, the purists, but it was it was great entertainment. And then, of course, you're right, you know, that, that bit at the end. Although I remember I was standing next to Kat um, from the Trust at the time, and uh, she said to me, I think we've got this. And then they got let go. And I went, what the, did you say that for? And then, of course, you know, it got overturned and we're jumping around with everybody else. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. And I, I know what you mean, Jace, about that, that it, it was an extraordinary game. But I mean, for, for me, you know, beating Ajax, that got us to a final. Beating City was something that we never thought we could do in that competition that they were so focused on. And, you know, again, going back to what we said at the start, that in, in the script of modern football, that, that, that cup was cities to win because that's what they spent all that money for. That's what the project is about. They, need, they needed to win that. And they were on their way to the final. They were going to win the, that, that trophy. That, that was the script that was written. And we completely ripped that apart. Uh, and it, it, was, it was fantastic that night. But for, for me, and I know we'll talk about it in a minute, the, the Ajax was, was, was just the comeback and the fact that we got to a final was just astonishing. It was just so ironic as well, wasn't it? That having won such a... A momentous game that fate throws you straight back to the stadium four days later for a for a Premier League game as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, and oddly enough, because we we hadn't stayed over, we went up. Uh, we didn't have the leave left, so we travelled up for the European game. Came back on the train, and of course, on the Saturday, you back up to Manchester again. You know, for for another day trip. But I think um, uh, we didn't play badly in that game either. But I mean, they got their revenge. Just spent the whole game just doing pictures to TV screens with their hands. At the city fans, which didn't uh, didn't improve the relations between the two sets of fans. Let's say and we're still doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think everybody. The trouble is with, with VAR is that everybody's benefited from it and been done by it. So people are able to step back and go, "What do I really think about it now?" Well, does it benefit me? Yeah, that could be a whole nother debate in itself. Martin, you mentioned it a couple of seconds ago. Let's bring that IX game into context now because the home game. The atmosphere in that stadium was incredible in the build-up to kick-off, so much so that the iconic Champions League anthem was completely drowned out by Oh When the Spurs, although it was a night when Ajax showed off all their qualities, and to be fair, they did actually outplay us and probably should have killed the tie-off even in that first leg. Yeah, I mean, that, that was it was a strange night, actually, because the atmosphere was, was fantastic at the start, uh, I, I think that uh, it was partly Ajax's performance, and I think it was partly that you know it's another semi-final, isn't it? Uh, you know, I mean, how many we lost in a row now, and I think that was starting to to kick in. The nerves were there as well, so I think you know the Ajax fans were were pretty special. We know they are as well. They they made a good show of themselves in the stadium 
uh, that night as well, and they were noisy and they, you know, very kind of visible. And I think the steam had kind of been knocked out of the of the home crowd a bit by the end of it. Um, but uh, and you know, we we thought actually we'd probably been found out here because that was a a very very good side, you know, a young side as well, and there was a great story to be written there. But they they completely dominated the game, and they almost did to us what we'd done to City in the uh, in the first leg beforehand. And it was disappointing to lose a game, you know, at the new stadium so early on in our tenure there as well. Looking at it at the start of this season, I was remembering how good that side were, and you just think, you know, that's one of the things that's really run the competition now because that side had to go through qualification to even get into the competition again this year, and that. You know, that, that performance was one of the best I've seen of any team in Europe in a long time in that in the first leg. And all credit to them for that. Martin, did you travel to Ajax for that second leg? We, we were over there for that one. Uh, went over the day before. Um, met up with a lot of people. I mean, there were there were so many Spurs over there. I mean, I, I've been in some big travelling support before. You know, when we went to Milan all those years ago and we went to Madrid for the quarterfinal. Uh, there was over 15,000 Spurs fans over there. But, I mean, it was a massive turnout. And everywhere you went, it was Spurs fans. So we were there the night before. And, of course, we watched, uh, we're in a bar, oddly enough, and watched the Liverpool-Barcelona game, which was dramatic. You know, well, that, that, that's the drama. I wonder what we're going to do. And we were kind of worried. You know, we just thought Ajax had the better of us as well in the first leg. So what's going to happen? Uh, so we had a good couple of days out there. But we just seemed quite nervous. Uh, and of course, the first half, <laughs> uh, you know, it seemed, the nerves seemed to be justified, really. So at half time, we're all sitting there thinking, well, it's been nice, but that's it. How low, Martin, would you say in that first half was that feeling on the potential of missing out on the biggest day in the club's history? Or was there just a feeling if we could just get one goal or get that next goal, we could make a comeback? The players, if they can't get up for this game, what game can they get up for? And I, I thought we'd let ourselves down in that first half. And that's to take nothing away from Ajax, who, again, was a fantastic side, really took the chances. Um, and I was quite angry, and I just thought, I, I thought we'd lost it. So it's a good job I'm not playing for the team. And I think a lot of fans, you know, that if uh, we, 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 people, the player will make a mistake on the pitch, and they've got to drag themselves back into it and try and make the, make the best of it. Uh, and I kind of wallowed a little bit, and I thought, that's it, we, we've lost it, but well, I'll go out, and we're going to support them in the second half. And of course... You know what? What unfolded in front of us was, uh, you know, I, I will never forget. I will never forget that that second half of, of the, the emotion uh, of, of of what we saw, the celebrations afterwards. You know, we were held back for, for over an hour, and nobody cared. You can know, hold us back all night. Um, you know, the players in front of us celebrating, Pochettino celebrating. It was a big loving over in that corner at the end of it. But um, that that last minute goal for Mora was just the most astonishing moments in a way. And I mean, I mean, I don't know, you know, there was just piles of bodies and people jumping around and general chaos and carnage. It was un- unbelievable. Well, as Ajax themselves said, mate, don't worry about a thing because every little thing's going to be all right. It, it's the warning, isn't it? You know, you never, you know, wait until you've actually got it and never go too soon. On Players and kit are often defined by, by single nights in, in a club's history, but will any individual performers ever be remembered more so than Lucas Moore? Just how iconic will that green kit become? That, that kit, apparently, I mean, it, it sold out completely isn't it, after that game. He can't get hold of it anymore at all now. But, I mean, yeah, his performance was just, uh, you know, you see something like that, you know, if you're lucky once in a lifetime. I mean, we've been lucky to see some great players, some great performances for Spurs over the years. But that, that's absolutely got to be up there against a very, very good side as well. And you look back at the three goals as well. And I mean, you know, 
that guy can play football kindly as well. You know, the skill that he shows, the anticipation, we rode a little bit of luck at times as well. But And watching the slow-mo of, of that third goal, uh, because it's, it's almost like when you watch the slow-mo of Ricky Villa, or you spend the money, you know, you have rows with people because you don't turn up for things because Spurs are playing or whatever. That's what you do it for. It's emotion like that. The book highlights the problems over ticketing, travelling, accommodations for the final. Has there been any meaningful progress on those issues? Um, not especially, I have to say. I mean, it's always things are very slow because you're dealing with UEFA. Uh, they're not particularly keen on talking to us and the money and the TV companies hold the sway. But um, we're getting a little bit of somewhere. I mean, we, we again, me and Alex kind of talked quite a lot about how much it is that we put in. And I've always tried to keep what I do with the trust separate from, you know, the writing that I do outside of my full-time job as well. And again, I've had people having to go at me saying, oh, the trust have written a book, or that the trust haven't written a book because it's not their job to do that. But we're volunteers and there are other things that we do in our life as well. And, and this is this is one of them. But um, there's been a little bit of uh, recognition from Safarin, who's the general secretary of UEFA now, that UEFA needs to look at what's happening with away fans. They need to look at ticket allocation. They need to look at the venues that people are playing in as well. Um, so um, there's been, you know, very, very kind of small steps, if you like, but there's there's, there's something there and it's uh, it's on the agenda. It is being pushed. We're working with Fans Europe, which is the kind of pan-European version of the Football Supporters Association. Football Supporters Association are working with us as well. And we, we meet regularly from, you know, other people's issues and uh, try and learn from any solutions that have been in there as well. So there's work being done and it shows, you know, I would always say that it's, it's good for fans to organise and talk to each other. Uh, you know, obviously kind of keeping the rivalry in there as well, but there's, there's ways that we can help each other out. So we've um, we've tried to do that. We're outside the control of football, though, and I think that, you know, there are bigger arguments like, um, you know, how you book uh, plane tickets and the fact that you can kind of book something and you say, oh, I'll take that price. And then just as you get to put it in the basket, it says, oh, no, it's gone up again or kicks you out and you have to go back to the beginning. And you just think there's a little bit of sharp practice in there. And the same with the kind of hotels putting their, their rates up. So, um, there's the argument about how much you interfere in the market, isn't there? Some people will say it's just the market and if the demands work slightly differently with football. So some of it's outside the realms of football. Uh, I think what we can do things on is are things like um, the, the allocation of tickets. And, you know, the big issue at the final was that the fans of the two competing clubs got fewer than 50% of the tickets. Uh, and that's that, although they were officially allocated fewer than 50% of the tickets. Um, we recognise that, you know, in the modern game, the sponsors need to get some tickets in return for the money that they get in and the football family and all the rest of it. But a lot of those tickets end up in the hands of real fans, but for vastly inflated prices. So one I'm trying to do is say, if you're a sponsor uh, and you know that uh, you're getting a load of tickets, but they're all going on the black market, uh, that's not really very good for your brand, is it? Because you're helping to rip fans off. And actually, the reason you're associating yourself with football is because you want people to like you because football is a popular sport so we're trying to have those kind of conversations to see if we can work on things that we can achieve things on like you know greater allocation and you know maybe kind of better facilities i said we were relatively lucky in madrid it's relatively easy to get to two english teams playing in baku and all the issues that went on there you know is, is another question entirely it could be us you know over the next few years we could end up having to play in some completely bizarre stadium as well so you know one of the criticisms is always uh now, well, why are you bothering? It's not going to affect you. But, well, you know, some of these things could affect us in a few years' time. To the final itself, we haven't discussed it until this moment. The biggest game in the club's history. Just how much pride was pumping through you when both those teams took to the field? And how big a punch was it where 29 seconds into a game, Spurs concede a penalty? And it just felt at that moment, I don't know if it was for you as well as a supporter, that 
all that preparation, those three weeks Maurizio had with the players of getting the team ready, engineering a game plan for Liverpool, somewhat to a degree, went out of the window. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know, again, so many emotions at, at that game. We had a fantastic trip out there, met up with loads of people, went to the fan park, had a great time. We are out there the night before. Um, but I think the immediate run-up to the game, the, the, we were just scared that we were going to get our tickets nicked or we were going to get mugged or whatever. And, you know, everyone was just like, let's just try and get in the ground. Uh, it, the organisation outside the ground was complete chaos. Uh, it was boiling hot. Um, we got into the fan zone uh, and, you know, things were breaking down in there. There was no shade. It was really hot. And I remember um, the kind of specialness of it kicked in. There was a group of us standing outside uh, the main stadium uh, in the, in some shadow. By the, we were huddled up against the wall so we could get out of the main sun. And um, somebody got their phone out and the pictures from the high road of everybody just a completely packed high road. And on that corner by number eight and the outside of the shop and the south stand, uh, the crowd just absolutely filled with people. And they were singing. Uh, and then... This guy held his phone up and everybody around us started singing back to Spurs in Tottenham on the phone. And Spurs, I think his mate was there. And it was just like digital call and response between Madrid and London, which was just bizarre. And he started having the feeling like this is different and it's special. And I think the oddest sensation was that you got in there and you think, you know, I'm at a European game. I'm at the European Cup final in Spain and I'm playing an English team. I'm playing a team that I've seen at their ground and at our ground quite a lot, but we're in a totally different situation now. Uh, and it, it was it was quite weird, first of all. Um, and then, you know, it was fantastic. You know, you were right into it when they come out. And as you say, you know, 30 seconds in. And that's the biggest regret for me, that we weren't even on level terms for, for longer than 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, did we know how important winning was then as well? It, it was painful. Uh, I'm still not convinced about that penalty, but I'm not going to moan about it because we should have taken our chances later on as well. But as you say, it did change the way the game was played. And the great pity was, and Liverpool fans would agree with this, that wasn't their best game that they played at all either last season. And, you know, they are and were a very, very good side. Pity because you just think that was our chance. If we'd have just, you know, put in half of the effort and the ability that we had in, in the run-up to that final, then we, we could have had them. I always think about the, the what-ifs from the game and team selections, but... And wonder if we'll ever get that chance to, to have that magical day. I think you're right. I mean, look, the thing you touch on there, which is the big question, isn't it, is that is there was the selection right, and, and specifically, should he have chosen Kane or should he have put more on, especially after the semi-final? And my, the way I always look at it is, uh, we always have this discussion before the game kicks off. You know, when you get the lineup an hour beforehand, and I say to people, call it now. Uh, is that the right team or not? Uh, because I don't have the argument afterwards when it's easier to do the "I told you so." Uh, and I called it that he was right beforehand, and the basis that I thought he was right was that uh, I think, you know, if you're managing a team with Lionel Messi in it, Messi's fit, Messi starts. Now, I'm not putting Kane on the same scale as Messi, you know, I think Kane is a world-class player, but he thought Kane was fit, and so you play him, and believe me, if he hadn't played Kane and we'd lost that, there were people would have been right on his back as well, and that's to take nothing away from Mora, and yes, you can look at the game and say tactically it might have worked out differently, was Kane really match fit or whatever? The manager, who I think has got credit in the bank, uh, thought he was fit enough and he played him. So I, I, I'm not going to dwell on that decision. I'm not going to say whether he's wrong. Alex thinks slightly differently. Alex said it was fairly obvious, and we talk about this in the book as well. He said it was fairly obvious that Kane shouldn't have played. 
Uh, and it's a perfectly legitimate point of view. Nobody's right or wrong on that. But, uh, you know, I try and call it beforehand. And I can understand why Kane played in that game. Yeah, Kane, Kane was in my team, I have to admit. You know, I, I, as you say, hindsight's easy, but I was picking Kane for the final, I must admit. Martin, the chapter One Step From Glory reflects on the season also overall. A season of nearly again, not just the Champions League final, but also a Carabao Cup semi-final and the title race lasting until mid-February. And of course, the move finally back home to that new stadium. Something that is supposed to bring great optimism for the future. Now we have been in that stadium for what, near on what we now between six to nine months so far. What's your thoughts on that stadium? and going there as a supporter? I think the stadium's great. Uh, it's better than I expected it to be. I was worried that it was going to be a, a modern, soulless stadium. I think the club have got a lot of things right about it. I think the bowl itself is, is fantastic. Um, I think that when the conditions are right, I mean, there's a bit of a myth that's grown up that uh, on the times when the atmosphere has been a bit flat, people say White Hot Lane was bouncing every week for every game. It wasn't. I can remember the arguments, you know, that we need to improve the atmosphere or whatever. Uh, I think that when the crowd's up for it and when they're getting the energy from the team, uh, that stadium can, is, is absolutely magnificent. Uh, I think the facilities are really good. Um, a lot of the kind of the posh end stuff is not for me. That's not like how I want to go and see my football. But absolutely good luck to the people that, that do want to do that. And there's nothing wrong with there being decent facilities in there. I think they've done great things with, um, with uh, a lot of the facilities that we've got. I think, you know, the £4 a pint beer, you know, we're expecting them to cash in a little bit more. So that's all really good. I think the thing, though, is that, you know, a stadium is just a stadium, isn't it? And I don't go to watch the stadium and I can go to lots of places to have some food and a pint and to meet my mates or whatever. Uh, it's what happens on the pitch that's important. And I think that's what people are looking at now is that what we were told is that we need to move to a new stadium because more people want to come and watch Spurs. So I know more, more people can. Uh, but we also need to generate the revenue in order to make sure that we can compete in terms of the wages that we pay and the transfer fees that we pay, and also to have that stature uh, of being a, a major club, a major world brand, if you want to use that, that word that a lot of us hate. So we'll see. We'll see if that pans out. You know, people are towards the board now and saying, well, OK, you know, this money that we're generating, is that going to be invested? Are we going to be able to move up to, you know, that horrible phrase, move up to the next level? But so I think that it's, you know, the stadium will be just as successful in five or six years' time if the team is successful. Uh, and I think that's that extra pressure because that, that team needs to be playing Champions League football at that stadium, uh, not Europa League football, it's certainly not no Europe at all, and it needs to be competing near the top. Now, in the end, you know, only four teams can win. Uh, there's only four trophies on offer in any one season, so most people are going to run out uh, not winning. But uh, and you have to look at the balance and it would be boring if the same team won all the time. I know I wouldn't mind being bored for a while if we just kind of won everything for, for a couple of seasons. I wouldn't I wouldn't push that away. But um, yeah, you know, the, the, the success of the stadium will be in the end, it will be dependent on the success of the team. The two things are linked together, really. The book doesn't, of course, end with the final. There is the, the final chapter, which is New Steps to Glory, which takes a look at the summer that's just gone past. And here we are now two months into a new season. On reflection, would you would you write anything differently in that final chapter, the line that that no one could say that the board was not back in Pochettino? Uh, I don't think we would. I mean, we managed to we, we we kind of made a bit of a pain in the backside of ourselves with our publishers and printers by saying when's the latest that we can uh, just put a kind of final few words in, and we wanted to try and 
Um, we had to finish the book at the end of July, so we had a month after the final. So there's a lot of work that went in to, to get the whole thing finished, to write 60,000 words in a month and to make sure that they were good and all in the right order. Um, and um, we managed to get uh, pretty much towards the end of the transfer window and we, we wanted to get a comment in on that. Uh, and, you know, at the time, it was the right thing to say, and I would still stick by that, that we'd had the famous thing of, you know, for two windows, we hadn't signed any players. And at the end of that transfer window, we'd signed the four players that we were told were the four top priorities that the manager wanted. And mm. the Barla was, you know, we missed out, but that, that was something that came up a little bit out of nowhere. Nobody sort of, uh, you know, realised that would be on. So no one could say the ball wasn't back in Pasquatino. Um, he'd got the four players that he wanted to sign. I think on the ins and outs that a lot of people are now saying you know, there's players that don't want to be there. They should have been sold. Well, OK, that might be right. But if nobody wanted to buy them, then you can't move them on. And there's arguments about whether we were asking too much or whatever. But for all of the noise about Christian Eriksen, uh, I don't know of a single reliable rumour uh, that says that any of the Spanish clubs or any of the clubs in Europe were really in for him. And I know, you know, allegedly had his heart set on Real Madrid, but once they got Hazard, who seemed to be their number one target, they weren't going to go for Ericsson. So, uh, you know, I think that, I think possibly what we're seeing at the moment is that, that those two transfer windows where we didn't sign players possibly led to a little bit of complacency and stagnation in the squad. Uh, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about, you know, how Ferguson used to change things up, you know, every so often just to keep it fresh. And maybe that's what Pochettino has been alluding to with some of his rather cryptic comments in press conferences. But um, so we might be suffering a little bit from, from that. I think there is a feeling that maybe we could have pushed on a little bit further. But it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because in the end, none of us know, you know, what deals were really on, what deals weren't on at all. Um, I, th I think that, again, it will take a while to spin out. And I think it, it goes back to what I said about the stadium. We're generating all of these revenues at the moment. Uh, and I think people have understood that, that our club hasn't had the, um, the the funds or necessarily, you know, the, the, the worldwide clout to compete with the so-called big four for a while. But but now we're generating that money, then people aren't going to be as sympathetic to that argument. And they're going to say, well, if other people can sign and move on and refresh, then why can't we? Although, you know, look at what's happening at Manchester United at the moment, who's in a worse position. There's an interesting discussion to have there, isn't there? We did say before the show that we would do a special question out there for the opportunity for our listeners to get a copy of the book. Do you want to read out the question we've got for our listeners in terms of how they can enter this competition? Uh, I'll leave you to tell them how they can enter, but the question they need to answer is, who played in goal for Tottenham Hotspur in the first Champions League game of last season's Champions League run? OK, do I repeat that question one more time, Martin? Who played in goal for Tottenham Hotspur in the first Champions League game of last season's Champions League run? Fantastic. Guys, in order to get the opportunity to win a free copy, all you need to simply do is email us directly at the podcast. And our podcast email address is lastwordonspurs at outlook.com. I will repeat that for you. That's lastwordonspurs at outlook.com. Martin's read you the question. Send in your answer and you could be the winner of a copy of Martin's fantastic book. Martin, it's been a great chat having you for this hour. The last question I have to really ask you is where can our fans lay their hands on a copy of this book? And just to reiterate, it's most certainly not a celebration of failure if you've listened to this podcast over this last hour. 
Thanks for that. And that's why it's called One Step from Glory. Um, you can get hold of the book from Pitch Publishing. Uh, if you Google Pitch Publishing, you can order direct from their website. Uh, you can get hold of the book from Amazon uh, as well. Uh, branches of Waterstones in central London and throughout north London and the home counties should be stocking copies of the book. Uh, and some branches of WH Smiths as well. Uh, if your local bookshop hasn't got it, go and ask them to stock it. And they'll order it in for you. But so, you know, in, in person or online. We're also, me and Alex Finn, the co-author, are trying to set up uh, some events and signings over the coming months as well. So uh, we'll um, try and make sure that you're among the first to know, Ricky. You're uh, still. If we do those. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. And Jason, it's been a pleasure having Mars and actually having a bit of time away from the first team, isn't it? It is. It's, it's been nice to, to have a few, few good memories to, to fall back on because... Let's be fair, the last few weeks have, have been tough. And even early in that, when Martin was talking about us beating Newcastle by seven at White Hart Lane. You know, let's be fair, Martin's right. It doesn't glorify in, in, in a failure or anything like that. But it does take us back to what was some absolutely astonishing memories. And and as I said, there will be in 20 years' time when you're, you're talking to your children and in 40 years' time when it's your grandchildren going we will be talking about the night of Lucas Moura's goal and, and your your grandchild won't say, Dad, but who won the final or anything like that. It will just be those memories that, that let's be fair, our dads have passed down to us and our granddads passed down to our dads. It, it's just, you know, special, special times. Agree with that one. Well, Martin, thank you ever so much again for joining us and we have to get you on the podcast this season, hopefully talking about a Tottenham Hotspur win. Or maybe many of them. Many of them. Please, God, please, God, many of them will come. Martin, do you back us to turn around in this form? Probably the final question I am going to ask you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I believe in the manager. And look, these these players are good enough. Uh, maybe they need to believe in themselves a little bit more. There's obviously some issue there, but um, I think they've got credit in the bank. Uh, Pochettino won't be happy and he won't be, he won't be resting on this as well. So um, I believe in him. I think we can turn it around, yeah. Agree. I think also the advice I would give is just for these players, stay off social media. You know, that's the only thing I would give. You know, social media at times, whilst it can be a wonderful platform, you actually alluded to it, Martin. It's all dependent on how you use that platform. That's right, yeah. I'd completely agree with you. Thanks ever so much. It's, it, it means a lot to, to, to you know, kind of hear. And we've had a lot of, you know, we've talked about some of the negative response, but there's been far more positive response. And it's good to know that, you know, You've hit a chord with people and it means a lot to hear fans say, actually, uh, it's good to relive that. So um, thanks for your kind words tonight as well. It really is appreciated. No problem fantastic, at all. Mate. No, it's, it's been fantastic having you, Martin. Well, guys, we are back as normal. Last word on Spurs. We're obviously doing three shows a week for you at the moment. We will have Martin on hopefully throughout the season. Him along with Kat as well from the Trust. Enjoy the show. And as always, keep the faith and come on, you Spurs. Get the brands you love at littlewoods.com. 
Whether you use it for studying or streaming, find the Asus Chromebook 11.6-inch in grey for just $199.99. All with inclusive delivery and free returns. Hurry, offer ends 25th of October. Own it. Shop now at littlewoods.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.